Hello and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And Steve, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about Sega's 16-bit powerhouse console, the Sega Mega Drive, also known as the Sega Genesis here in the U.S., and its wonderful YM2612 FM sound chip. Yeah, uh, Steve, did you have a Sega uh, Mega Drive Genesis growing up? It's funny because uh, I actually got it after I got a Super Nintendo, and I think uh, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about the history, but uh, I was really into kind of renting it over the weekend all the time. Um, <laughs> like, you know, how they used to have like at Blockbuster, you could rent a console. I used to rent it and play Sonic 2 to the point where my parents were like, we're tired of paying for this. And then they, I, I got a Genesis 2 for Christmas. Um, and then they wouldn't let me rent games for two months. So it was kind of like the money offset or something, you know, like, <laughs> you know, how, how parents kind of do things like that. Um, yeah. but I, I really loved, uh, my mega drive. Uh, I'm assuming you did not because you had an Amiga at that time, right? That's right. Yeah. I didn't own any yeah. consoles growing up. And, uh, so, um, of course I got to play Sega games growing up. It would just always be like at a friend's house or, uh, oddly enough, like at, at like the dentist's office. Oh, that's interesting. Stuff like that. Like there would always be uh, like a Sega hooked up for some reason. Uh, no, it was a, it was a great console, <laughs> and it, it's it's funny though because like you know uh, just before we even get into this, like the idea of like going over to friends' houses and playing the console you didn't have. Uh, I feel like the Genesis to a lot of people was that console. Uh, people would come over and be like, "Hey, can we play Mortal Kombat? I heard you got a Genesis," and like they basically ignore me and play, and play Mortal Kombat 2. Um, yeah, I remember like going to the dentist's office and playing Vector Man in the waiting room. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so let's get into the history here. Uh, the Sega Mega Drive was released on October 29th, uh, 1988 in Japan. Uh, U.S. markets saw the console rebranded as the Sega Genesis due to a trademark issue, actually, uh, in August 14th of 1989. That's like about a, about a year later. Yeah. And the uh, PAL markets finally saw the console in limited release uh, starting on November 30th in 1990. So like a year later still. Yeah, it, it, the, the rollout was kind of messy, uh, uh, in, especially in the PAL regions. Um, the Sega Mega Drive was developed as a successor uh, to the Sega Mark III and the Sega Master System, uh, which is interesting. They, I've heard to, in some of the manuals I've been reading that they refer to the Sega Master System as the Mark IV. Um, and so, of course, they refer to the Sega Genesis in its proto-phase as the Mark V. Ah, uh, Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. And it was going to, they were going to try to exploit uh, some of the new developments without getting too technical and 8 bit technology. So it was still going to be an 8 bit processor. Uh, you know, and that would also allow it to be backwards compatible with all Mark III and Master System games. The Sega Mark III is backwards compatible with the SC1000 uh, games and I think some SC3000 Sega home computer games. Yeah, they, they have like a tradition of backwards compatibility then. Yes, yeah, so project head uh, Masami Ishikawa really said, stated that was kind of a key element to this console uh, because I guess there's this idea that if the other consoles they made could play games uh, in a backwards compatible way, that this console had to do it too because it wouldn't be fair. Uh, you know, I really wish my PS4 could play PS3 games. That'd be pretty yeah, great. Yeah, I, 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 I wish that too, considering I have a PS4 and I don't have a PS3. and. I, I'm tempted every time I go into GameStop to just buy a PS3 so I can play some of the games I missed. But Ooh, yeah, right. I, I just think, you know, it really is kind of an idea of fairness. I think they were onto something a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so Sega eventually got wind of the Super Famicom and had to rethink some things. Uh, so the idea was to essentially try to replicate their popular Sega System 16 board for home use. Yeah, I mean, so they kind of, in the middle of developing that 8-bit console, found out that the Super Famicom was coming, and they basically scrapped everything they were doing and were like, okay, we're going to go right to the Motorola 68000 uh, as the core for the system. Um, you know, so <clears throat> they kind of skipped a step. It's like, if well, if they're producing a 16-bit console, we, we better beat them, and we better beat them using a, a kind of a powerful uh, chipset. What was really cool at the time uh, is that that chipset just randomly happened to have a price drop. It was mentioned in interviews with Ishikawa-san, oh, wow. uh, where he mentions it just so happened that there was a price drop, so it made perfect sense. And they uh, were able to kind of get the part for the uh, the system. So there you go. Finally, a proper 16-bit home console. And it, apparently, so it wasn't technically the first 16-bit home console, though, uh, even though they used that in their advertising. Uh, so uh, apparently the Mattel Intellivision was the first 16-bit home console. Yes, <laughs> that's actually absolutely true. Uh, with its mighty, I think it had sub 1 megahertz processor, like 0.75 megahertz or something like that. Um, you know, but it's kind of interesting. I, I wouldn't ex have expected that. And I actually had to be told that by someone on Battle of the Bits uh, when, when I was asking. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, I think didn't the PC Engine have 16-bit graphics? Uh, but it's that that only had an 8-bit processor, though, right? So that was that's like another system that kind of straddled the 8-bit and 16-bit era. Yeah, and the, the Motorola, Motorola 68000 is capable of 32-bit processes on across two different ones i can't remember exactly but yes it wasn't it wasn't uncommon for a chip to be set to a certain bit level and also have capabilities of other ones so right. um so anyway so sega was able to quickly and efficiently move their arcade games onto the home console by using similar architecture to their arcade boards and they aggressively marketed the Mega Drive by showing arcade gameplay and sega Mega Drive gameplay side by side touting that it was nearly indistinguishable well to our eyes and ears, it's not kind of the truth. Uh, mainly the Sega uh, System 16 was just flat out more powerful, a much more impressive board, uh, much more capable of, uh, I guess, graphic scaling and uh, the sprites could be bigger and uh, lusher backgrounds. Um, so, uh, you know, it had better graphics capabilities and better sound output overall. So, yeah, while while they were putting them together, the, the I mean, if you were to look at the comparisons now, even the ones they show of the two things side by side at the trade shows, like the actual 1988 videos showing these things, uh, it, they don't look the same at all. But people <laughs> were so people were so enthralled with the idea that it almost looks the same. <laughs> and well, I mean, and a complete clone of that board though for home use would have cost way oh, way too much though. Um, yeah, absolutely. Of course, Sega was trying to cut costs, and uh, you know that wound up paying off for them. Um, because really the Sega Mega Drive didn't need to be as powerful as the Sega S System 16 arcade board. It just needed to be notably more powerful than the Famicom, really. Yeah, which is, which it definitely is. Um, the Mega Drive was much more powerful and Sega targeted these differences uh, as like, you know, how they showed side-by-side -side comparison arcade. They also showed side-by-side -side comparison of arcade ports on the Mega Drive and the Famicom. Oh, yeah. Um, and the Mega Drive in every situation was much more impressive. Bigger sprites, more colors, uh, faster gameplay. What's interesting about this, though, is like, yeah, I mean, that sells it for me if I was looking at the two together. Like, oh, which of these consoles would you rather buy for an arcade experience? I would rather buy the Sega Mega Drive. 
Um, but this business model only had a middling effect in Japan. And the console actually didn't sell very well right out of the gate, even though it was technically much more superior to the uh, Famicom. So, like, what would be the reason for this? Like, uh, I mean, arcade games were very popular at that time. Yeah, they were. But it's important to note, I guess, uh, and just thinking about the history of games in 1988, RPGs were kind of the king in Japan. I mean, Dragon Quest III had just been released for the Famicom at that time. And this console came out touting games that you could just play in the arcade. So why buy a specialized unit Uh, to play a game in the arcade that only lasts about 20 minutes? Altered Beasts was one of the first titles in addition to Thunderblade 2 and a couple other uh, kind of direct arcade ports, which were games that you could just go to the arcade and play. Um, And they weren't very long. So uh, many people at that time were looking for deeper gaming experiences. And there weren't any launch title RPGs for the Sega Mega Drive. It's also worth noting that Nintendo, as we've mentioned before, had a vice grip on marketing with the crazy licensing agreements that basically made the console war in Japan less of a war and more of a monopoly. Nintendo, uh, you'd sign a licensing agreement and you could only produce games for Nintendo. Um, So, uh, you know, some total of all this, when the dust settles, is this will lead to Sega in in this particular generation finishing third in sales uh, behind the SNES after it eventually was released and the PC Engine. Oh, so even behind the PC Engine in Japan. Yep. Um, so the Sega Master System was popular in Europe, though. So I, you would expect that Sega turned their focus there. It's not quite. And I kind of mentioned it before. They botched the launch mostly and had to compete with the Amiga and Atari ST for a large part of the beginning of their console's lifespan. Um, so, I mean, you think about 1990 and when that was released, 1989, 1988. That's the heyday of that stuff. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's a tough sell to uh, a European audience where you can have an Amiga 500 that plays games and also does other things, or you can just have a dedicated box that plays only games. Um, and that's what the, the Mega Drive was kind of trying to do there. So, you know, it was a gaming console and a sea of consoles that weren't necess- uh, necessarily restricted to just games. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually, because, again, we mentioned this earlier in the episode, but I had Amiga growing up. I didn't have any consoles Mm -hmm. because my dad's logic was, I got you the computer. It can do a bunch of things. Yep. Yeah, I'm not going to buy you a gaming console. Um, So that's funny. You know, I'm not from Europe, but I can understand that being the experience. Because, yeah, the Amiga, it wasn't just for games. It had a really advanced word processor. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, it could do not only spell checking, but uh, grammar checking. Mm-hmm. Uh, built-in thesaurus check uh it could speak what you typed um you know there are art programs of, you know it's a computer of course and uh yeah to compete with that if a lot of people already had those that's that's kind of tough But anyways, uh, so basically, the Sega Mega Drive was the most successful in the United States as the Sega Genesis. Yeah, I mean, it was really popular here, and I, I guess it was more accidental than on purpose. Uh, Sega of America and Sega Japan did not exactly get along at the time. Uh, in the U.S., the console flatly smashed the sales of the NES when it came out. I mean, it was, you know, for those two years where there was no Super Nintendo here, it was literally taking market share from the Nintendo pretty quickly. 
on the Genesis market as edgier in the side-by-side comparison during numerous marketing campaigns, uh, such as the uh, you know Genesis does Nintendo don't campaign. It made the NES look like a toy or a system for kids or nerds, uncool people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They had a very aggressive marketing campaign here that was really just spearheaded specifically by the U.S. developers. It was not something that the Japanese developers were behind, and so it was really the credit here is really based on Sega of America's resilience. Uh, to, to sell it and to, to find a niche market for this console. So it, they didn't get a lot of support from Japan. It was all Sega of America that pushed it here. Genesis Dutch. 16-bit arcade graphics. Montana free, Pat Riley free, Buster Douglas free, Super Monaco GP free, or Collins free. What Nintendo buy a 16-bit Genesis system between now and October 31st and get an extra. So the Genesis enjoyed a huge lead in sales over the Super Nintendo upon launch, and a full-scale console war was waged. When Nintendo would lower the price, Sega would respond, and so forth. Um, Sega bragged of a sales lead for much of this time. But so did Nintendo. It's pretty unclear that the the big year where there was kind of a huge fight was 1992. The Sega Genesis was named the hot toy of the year, like the tickle me elbow of that year, (laughs) um, which is kind of interesting. And Sonic the Hedgehog was out at that time and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was out. So we're talking about like, if you think about the heyday of when many people, like even myself, got a Sega Genesis was right at this time because Sonic 2 was a really good looking game, like still kind of is today. Um, so they were able to kind of, you know, compete heavily into Christmas. Uh, Sega posted numbers that said that they had more than 50% of the market. And then Nintendo posted numbers that said they had more than 50% of the market. <laughs> so who really knows? But the fact is, in 1992, it was that competitive. Sega, Nintendo was actually worried enough that they were trying to say that they were the number one selling console. And while it, the history doesn't show it that way, 1992 must have been a pretty weird time for Nintendo to be actually you know, having a company in a market beating them, right. a market they cared about. Yeah. Um, so Sega was, you know, Sega of America was very busy forging alliances and trying to find ways to defeat Nintendo in the U.S. One of the first developers that actually jumped ship uh, from PC gaming originally and onto the uh, Genesis was Electronic Arts. Um, and there's a couple other companies, but Electronic Arts is the real big one. Uh, and Electronic Arts was able to produce lots of interesting uh, games. I mean, all the sports games that we know today, Madden, all of those things were Genesis first uh, mm-hmm. and then moved over to the Super Nintendo. Um, and, you know, they were able to exploit – and EA enjoyed it and other companies such as Midway and Acclaim and were able to exploit the looser standards for explicit content that the uh, that Sega of America was allowing uh, to maintain that gritty image. Yeah. Like, for example, Mortal Kombat had all of the original fatalities and gore on the Genesis and the Super Nintendo version like had all these altered uh, fatalities, watered down stuff. Um, Sega of America really tried to engage the teenage market over the kid market. Uh, and, you know, of course, blood and gore were the keys to that market. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> the one the one problem here is when it all comes down to it and kind of building that image, who pays for the games? You know, kids, the teenagers? Yeah, of course not. Of course, mom and dad are buying the games. So exactly. <laughs> they're the ones with the money and, you know, they're probably more likely to want to pass on the games with the blood and the guts. Uh so that who knows how much that sort of marketing actually helped Sega. There was concern at the time that you were seeing the most violent games to date 
on the Sega Genesis. Um, have you ever seen uh, the death animations in The Immortal on the Sega Genesis? I have, yes, actually. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely <laughs> amazing. They're I'll, like I'll link to it in the show notes. It is incredible. Um, if you were a cool parent, you bought uh, a Sega Genesis for your kid based on that. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's also I'm thinking of like uh, Splatterhouse and some of the, the some games that were just like absurdly violent. Like I knew some uh, kids when I was growing up that like really were like their parents would let them kind of have any game. Like I, I could rent Mortal Kombat too. I couldn't own it. But like I knew some kids who had all that stuff, and even their parents would the, would let them play Splatterhouse. Yeah, which no. is <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I remember having the one restriction that I can remember to this day was I really wanted to play Police Quest Three on the Amiga, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, my parents told me that I couldn't play it until I turned ten. Mm-hmm. And you know what I did on my tenth birthday? What did you do? <laughs> Played uh, Police Quest Three. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so worth it. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, and, and so the fact that we can kind of even talk about Sega's notoriety for this and uh, and understanding, like, every one of – it's ingrained in everyone's brain, the blood code for Mortal Kombat 1, you know, A-B-A-C-A-B-B. Um, like, pe- we remember this. This is kind yeah. of popular. You know, I mean, there, there were hearings in the, the United States Senate about – this exact kind of blood and gore at the gen- that the Genesis was pro- like you know propagating and saying was an you know Sega was trying to push onto our unsuspecting youth. Sega was really what spearheaded this, whether they like it or not. Um, so it was kind of a double edged sword, um, being the you know the kind of quote unquote badass of gaming consoles um, because it attracted people and it put people off. Right. Second, let me say that I share Senator Lieberman's outrage at the excerpts uh, that uh, we, uh, we will be viewing uh, on the TV. Mortal Kombat and Night Trap are not the kind of gifts that responsible parents give. Night Trap, which adds a new dimension of violence specifically targeted against women, is especially repugnant. It ought to be taken off the market entirely, or at the very least, its most objectionable scenes should be removed. But those games are only two examples. Let me tell you about another video game called Lethal Enforcers. It comes with a special piece of hardware, an oversized handgun called the Justifier. And what does this game seem to teach our kids? Basically, that a gun can solve any problem. So where did things start to go downhill for the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive? Well, it was that combined notoriety that we just mentioned and a series of really, really bad business decisions, plus the added pressure of Nintendo's Donkey Kong Country. It's very interesting that Donkey Kong Country really is the tipping point. Sega and Nintendo go head to head. And then once all of that, like, you know, beautiful pre-rendered stuff started happening, there was no way the Genesis could uh, keep up with that. And Donkey Kong Country was the beginning of the end of it being an actual competition. Um, So... That kind of, you know, by 1995, the Sega Genesis is kind of falling off. Sega of America is still producing games, but it's kind of it's kind of dead in the water. Also, you know, and speaking of those business decisions, the peripherals, the, you know, the Sega CD, oh, the God, Sega 32X, yeah. were just overpriced and, and, and totally boutique. I mean, you know, the Sega CD was for, you know, and I had one and I loved the living daylights out of it. And I played every RPG on it, but it was for nerds that like JRPGs. That's all it was for. And it was glorious. You know, it, it single-handedly made working designs a household name for many people. Uh, and, you know, Lunar and games like that were just 
unbelievable at the time. Like full scale RPGs with Redbook audio were, it was just an amazing experience. Um, but I, how many people are going to spend $299 for that unit? $399, I think in some cases, $299 for the extra unit and then $80 to $100 per game just to have Redbook right. audio. You know, it was just, it, it was a weird kind of business model. And or we've talked about it before that Nintendo ultimately decided not to make a CD unit. They saw what Sega did and were like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to release something that is an attachment, even though they, uh, you know, they kind of killed it. Um, you know, and I guess kind of the combined idea of like making these peripherals that didn't work, uh, getting kind of stung by Nintendo and, and also just literally in the middle of everything kind of being told, especially in the U S to stop all development and just focus directly on the Sega Saturn. That was a decree directly from Sega of Japan. Um, and it wasn't met very well by Sega of America who just wanted to keep making Genesis stuff. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's funny too, because the Saturn, uh, it, this is like opposite of what happened the first time that actually mm-hmm. sold very well in Japan and terribly in the U S yeah, I mean, there's a lot of jealousy between the two studios. It kind of unprecedented, really. You probably have to go back to the uh, Trammell era at Commodore to <laughs> get this kind of like rivalry between studios and kind of a cutthroat nature between the two. I mean, this rip basically doomed not only the Saturn because the U.S. wasn't really supporting it, but just Sega in general. Uh, and from many, there's many dev interviews about this, um, you know, and some of the ones that I've actually spoken with and had the, you know, I've, uh, under anonymity, but I've met before, really said that, you know, they can recall a lot of experiences of infighting and just flat out spiteful behavior by each side. It was kind of a rough time to work there. Yeah, that's a really crazy and weird situation. Uh, I think it was just really that Sega, and it, it's very similar to how Sega operates. And, you know, I like the company. <laughs> I've always liked the company. But it, I think that they grew very quickly. They had a lot of great ideas, and they were being pulled in a lot of directions. In some ways, Nintendo being a monopoly that controls all of their IPs, controls all of their information, controls literally everything, uh, was able to kind of keep everyone else in line because they were they they were almost gods. You know what I mean? They were able to just keep everything moving in a straight in a straight line um and i think sega was giving people liberty but with liberty c- comes rebellion perhaps <laughs> you know and i think that might have uh, might be why that uh, kind of steered in that direction gotcha um so we should probably get into talking about the audio yeah <laughs> <laughs> i could go on another four or five hours about uh, the history of the consoles there's so much we didn't cover but i think that's a good enough uh oh, yeah. you know basis Absolutely. to get us started So the Sega Mega Drive actually takes advantage of two different sources of audio. Uh, It has the Yamaha YM2612 and the Master Systems Texas Instruments SN76489, uh, also known as the PSG audio. The YM2612 is from the OPN family of uh, FM sound chips, which consists of the insanely powerful, fully integrated YM2608, which is used in the PC88 and 98 systems. Uh, The YM2612, uh, one zero, which is a slightly more customized version of this kind of same chip, but it was used in the Neo Geo, uh, and the YM two six one two, which was used in the Sega Mega Drive and the FM Towns, that my favorite console to mention. <laughs> <laughs> um, the YM two six one two variant of the OPN uses uh, six channels of four operator FM synthesis in analog stereo. Yeah, so we should try to break this down a little bit. Um, what is four operator FM synthesis? 
Yeah, I, I think that I will do my best to maximize the technical side of how to explain this while minimizing jargon. This is the first episode we've really done on any kind of operator-based uh, FM synthesis. We did the YM2413, uh, which is preset, and there's not really that much to talk about. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how it works and try to put this into the best words that I possibly can <laughs> to make it pretty clear. Let's talk about this in terms of notes. So, and kind of relating it to the NES, because I feel like a lot of people, the NES is pretty accessible and we've kind of gone over that audio. So each channel on the NES, whether it be Pulse 1, Pulse 2, Triangle, whatever, it can play one tone at the same time, whether that's, you know, like Pulse Channel 1 would play Pulse of 25%, 50%, or 75%. Yeah. So by contrast, any single channel, any single of the six FM channels on the YM2612 is playing back four different tones at the same time. And each of these tones could be manipulated and adjusted to create different effects. You're fully, you're fully in charge of customizing them. So this would be like in sort of maybe overly simplistic terms, programming four channels of NES music to combine to make the same pitch to like say octave uh, three note C together. Yeah, I, that's the very simplest term. I mean, it's not technically correct because they have some kind of effect on each other. But just imagine taking those four notes, assigning them envelopes that kind of have them trigger at different moments and making one tone from four different notes. I think in considering each one of those notes to be one of the operators, I think that's the easiest way to think about this. So all four of those notes working together in some pattern or in some way creates one tone or one channel of the uh, YM2612. And you can do that across six channels. So I, what I've done here is I've taken, I've gone into Duffel Mask and I took an instrument here. Um, and just to give you an understanding of how these, uh, you know, the additive effect of adding an operator. Um, so we're going to start this note here, this tone that I have sampled here, and it's going to play back uh, the note with one operator and then slowly add all the operators until all four are playing. You'll notice that there's a noticeable effect as each operator joins. Yeah, you can hear how the uh, sound keeps building up when you add them onto each other. Yeah, and like I said, it's not like you're playing four things at the same time. They have some kind of push and pull effect on each other. But you get the general idea. You can build them from the bottom up, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so they don't just all play at the same time, though. You can kind of stagger the effects through algorithms. These decide what order the operator would trigger. For example, a single tone might trigger the operators in order. One, two, three, or four. Or it could be one and two at the same time, then three, then four separately. There's a bunch of different combinations. Even some of them are just all four at the exact same time. And what this allows for is much more variation in how the tone is created. And it's really actually kind of cool. Um, so I took a bass instrument here and I went through and manipulated it through all the different algorithm settings. Um, so you could hear the differences uh, depending on how the operators are kind of entered as the note goes. Uh, so when we talked about the YM2413, that had just two operators, not four. 
Yeah, it, it's more scaled back. It's kind of was considered the value brand chip. Um, you know, and comparing uh, the two, it's pretty obvious that the YM2413 sounds a lot more hollow. Uh, that's simply from a lack of operators. Yeah, we have an example here from Altered Beast uh, on the Sega Genesis using four operator FM synthesis uh, as opposed to the Sega Master System version with only two operator FM synthesis. And the YM2413 had like preset instruments. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a difference here. You're uh, on the YM2612. You can fully, you're free to customize all six channels of sound, and you're only able to do that with on uh, with one channel on the 2413, or you have to use presets. Although you know the presets were fairly good, and they varied depending on what version of uh, the YM2413 uh, you had, whether it be the VRC7, which was on the Nintendo, or the uh, Sega Master Systems version. They had different presets, so you could kind of pre-program those and then play them back. Yeah, and I mean this all makes sense. Like it's, I think it's some of the nitty gritty details of FM synthesis that get a little complicated. But like the big picture is not really that hard to understand. Uh, you just sort of stack these different uh, voices together and use them to manipulate each other to make your final voice. No, yeah, that, that, that's exactly true. Um, it, it's actually really pretty intuitive. Uh, and as I said before, you know, I feel like either the complexity or whatever is kind of like. For lack of a better term, it's almost like gatekeeping for a, for FM. Um, due to the idea that it needs to be this kind of like high-minded feat of engineering versus it really is just like this sound kind of sounds like a bass, so I'm going to use it as a bass. And if I fiddle around with this, I kind of get something I'm looking for. Uh, so it's a much more complex process that uh, it really kind of takes people out of the music-making process and too much into the development of instruments. And I feel that that really is a turnoff to a lot of people who just want to make music. Yeah, there, there's a bit of a lack of predictability there. And I think that's the one of the biggest elements and what makes it a bit more confusing, which you know what you're getting with the square wave. You know what you're getting mm -hmm. with the sawtooth wave. Um, you don't really predict necessarily, unless you really know what you're doing, what the end sound is going to be when you're mixing and mashing these different uh, operators. So. I probably have in front of Defle Mask, and I'll say this in you know, in all honesty, probably four or five hundred hours of experience with Defle Mask and FM of writing, and I can say that there's still stuff on there that I press the button. I'm like, which one of these slider bars does what? <laughs> um, like, and I, I can see, like, I understand how to make all four of the operators make the sound I want them to make, but I'm still guessing half the time. Right. I'd be like, oh, that's the one that makes it more boingy. You know, I mean, I'm not like I'm adjusting this thing because this is the scientific way to do this. And this changes the – no, that's the boingy one. If I pull this, <laughs> it turns bo more boingy. You know, and like the manual for Duffel Mask, it, you know, it's complex or whatever. But I really like to know what each one of these things does and not just what it does to the math. It's always like a division problem or some kind of long explanation. What it does to the sound is really – uh, the musician's toolkit as opposed to, you know, uh, the physics of it, right. <laughs> you know, the actual process of uh, the audio coming out. So uh, I just feel that people, you know, every time I've asked that, and I, like I said, I asked a bunch of people, everyone I asked would give me the physics 
or, or the actual how it's working, the, the audiology behind it, as opposed to, well, this is the one that makes you make it more boingy. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, Which is what we need, is what like people like you and I need to really understand it. So, I hope what we're saying so far sheds a little bit more light onto how this actually works. Because I've really, I swear, it's not that complicated. Right. It, there's a lot more people who should be making this music because it's really actually a lot easier than you think it is. Exactly. Um, so I guess we should talk about what else can the Mega Drive do sound-wise? Like, uh, let's we did like channel breakdowns on the NES. Uh, what can we say about the Mega Drive? So all six channels uh, can do four-operator FM synthesis. Channel three can be broken up into separate channels, and you can play each of them as separate operators, which is kind of cool. So you can you can turn channel three into four separate channels, or two channels of two operators. There's a lot of twos there. Um, <laughs> also, the sixth channel can be adjusted to play back uh, 8-bit uh, PCM samples. Yeah, so this is where how the sample playback works on the Genesis. It's unlike the Super Nintendo, which has eight channels that all playback samples uh, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just have one channel on the Sega Genesis playing one sample at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually sound pretty good. Um, like on the NES, uh, most samples are typically 1-bit DPCM very very low quality uh 8-bit is much better i mean that's like what the amiga uses mm-hmm. so it, it drums start to sound more real and uh it sounds pretty good overall all right so it was really interesting um my friend uh barry the nomad uh who's over at sega bits sent me this packet that was kind of put together by the sonic retro community that has a bunch of the pre-Sega Genesis sampled sounds. In other words, these are the sounds that were taken and then put into the Sega Genesis to make sound effects for, I guess, Sonic and Knuckles. Um, and it's really cool because it's like a real sound effect, like a full wave file that's like, so it's like an original sound before it was dumbed down to be uh, and, and shot through the 8-bit uh, condensing that I had to go through to be through the sixth channel of the YM2612. That's an awesome find. That's really, really cool. Yeah, so uh, we can we'll play a couple of these uh, samples from Sonic and Knuckles here, uh, and you can hear the original sound, and then after that, what it sounded like on the Sega Genesis. Come on, go, come on, go. So this sample pack is called the Ultimate Sega Hideki Naga Numa Sample Pack. This is the version 3.0, and it features just like a lot of the original sounds there. Um, there's even, I mean, and I'm not, I'm unsure of the context and how this was fully integrated, but there's a really kind of cool, I guess, acapella version of just Michael Jackson singing. I'll put a link here to the sample pack. You can kind of mess around in there. The other thing that's really cool too is you'll see that um, some sound effects from some games, like Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, you know, the actual samples were reused in other games because these are the original file names. So you can actually see that some of the, uh, you know, Sega was borrowing a lot of things, like the iconic Sonic Drum um, was used in all the Sonic games, and it's called like Sonic Drum One or whatever. Um, so you can kind of see that written down, which is kind of cool. There's samples from more modern stuff in here too. There's uh, samples from Samba de Amigo uh, and mm-hmm. Monkey Ball. Yeah, in here. it's awesome. Yeah, this is it, really it's, cool. a, it's a really cool thing. I mean, and these are the kinds of things that are like artifacts. I mean, that, you know, we always talk about how we wish we could find, and me and Patrick joke about how we want to find the, the, what was sampled to make this unsoft bass. Where did it come from? What instrument? What's the story? Who was the person who did this? 
Um, and like to find, you know, just some of the little noises in the background of some of the Sonic and Knuckles music is kind of amazing. Like to actually hear the sound before it was brought into the console. Um, you know, this is a big tangent, but it's definitely worth mentioning, I think. Oh, absolutely. So we should also have to remember, as we said earlier, that the Sega Genesis Sega Mega Drive includes the PSG audio, I guess, you know, because it had the backwards compatibility to play Master System games. So it has that audio in there as well uh, for an additional four channels that can stack on top of what the 2612 does. Yeah, I mean, and it was often underutilized, um, you know, not, it was kind of used just for sound effects and kind of treated as a sub sound chip. But a lot of composers uh, i guess who who wrote really good sega genesis music and uh, some of the best that i can think of utilized it uh patrick you said you had a couple examples of this yeah i think like when talking about sega genesis music and what sounds best uh on the sega genesis i really think it's worth pointing out that it's kind of funny in some way that you got the new chip the 2612 for fm audio so that's like the more modern higher quality sound but if you don't include the uh the 8-bit audio in there as well you're really limiting yourself so i think it's kind of funny that uh, the Sega Genesis soundtracks benefit immensely from using that 8-bit audio. You put it all together and it sounds much, much better. I have an example here from Streets of Rage uh, where you can hear this melody in here. That's actually the square waves. It's it's music that could be made on the Sega Master System. Um, and they just use it to s- sneak in this melody here uh, with the FM doing the rest. And I think it sounds fantastic. Yuso Koshiro is a genius, <laughs> seriously. Um, and, you know, d- kind of using every channel and just the effects he was able to get in Streets of Rage and Streets of Rage 2 are amazing. And his really super experimental Streets of Rage 3 soundtrack, um, you know, takes full advantage of every possible thing that the, the console is capable of doing. Um, so, yeah, it, it, using those extra channels, it, it, it really fills it out. I mean, you are talking, you know, nine channels of polyphony and one noise channel versus just six it it really makes a difference absolutely Sega was really trying to make an arcade experience come alive at home. Uh, choosing a chip that was similar to their Sega System 16 sound chip uh, was kind of a must. So while the Sega Mega Drive uses the YM2612, Sega System 16 uses the YM2151. Yeah, and there are a couple fundamental differences. Uh, the YM2151 provides eight channels instead of six, and it doesn't have an onboard way of playing back samples. Uh, the YM2151 was paired with separate chips that were capable of playing back samples and even straight up ADPCM. Uh, so, yeah, it would sound similar, but it's not exactly the same as the arcade. 
Yeah, and that kind of goes back to why using those PSG channels are so important because you know, you're basing your songs off something that actually had more notes and more tones. Though a lot of things stylistically in the YM2151 world were, you know, those extra channels were utilized for echo effects. Um, a lot of, you know, kind of how we do multi-channel echo on the NES. The YM2151, if you look at some of the VGM files, it's like three channels for just one melody, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, <clears throat> you know, it's not that they, every single game utilized all eight channels, but the better experience would be including those extra channels. Um, I've kind of messed around with the YM2151. I kind of love it. It's it's kind of a really different sound. Um, and most of the instruments that I've ripped from uh, YM2151 VGM files uh, work for the most part uh on Mega Drive. Okay. Um, and there's like a couple of depth issues, mainly having to do with the LFO. And the YM2151 has no SSGEG mode. Um, SSGEG, what's that? I'm hoping that I'm saying it right because I've never actually had to say it out <laughs> loud before. So <laughs> this is a huge can of worms. These are these little settings. Um, it allows for an operator repeat commands and start back at the front of the operator's attack. So you can set this mode on each one of the different operators and it would it kind of loops like just imagine you're using the uh, uh, family tracker and you know how you can loop the envelope so that it continues to like for a volume sweep it keeps doing the volume sweep over and over and over again yeah you can set that for each of the different operators to kind of loop the effect over and over again okay so it, it has four distinct modes you know it can make things sound nice and wobbly because it can create one you can just have one operator doing it or multi-operators um, and I think that's my main understanding of it. I, I usually turn it on when I want a note to sustain, but also have some kind of almost a feeling of automation to it. Uh, again, I, I'm going to attach something here that is really, really good at explaining this and explaining exactly how the LFO works. So, But hopefully that helps a little bit with that. <laughs> it, there's a lot of nuance to the sound design that can go into a Sega Genesis soundtrack. And I think it's interesting because even Sega was self-aware of this like they thought it was kind of difficult uh and that's why they developed something called the gems sound driver ah yes the (laughs) the cheat mode yeah so the gems sound driver served as an intuitive way to program music for games uh 186 games in the sacred library actually used it including sonic spinball um and apparently it was pretty easy to use yeah it was i mean it was very intuitive they basically created a program that was literally david warhol (laughs) (laughs) Or like, you know, I mean, I guess another way to put it would be Alberto Gonzalez's uh, compact editor. Um, But, you know, they gave it for everyone so they could use it uh, kind of to make to kind of up the level of their music to compete with uh, Super Nintendo's music. Yeah, it allowed for quick composition. The program was fully operational in DOS and was fully compatible with MIDI. Uh, So composers could just write MIDI tracks, map and transfer it over. Yeah, I mean, and it was great because what people could do to make it sound perfect is they could take their DX7 keyboard, which is not exactly the same. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get into this, but you could get similar sounds on the DX7 keyboard, export that to MIDI and just slam it into, you know, a kind of like map how you wanted it to go. And boom, you had Genesis music and you could with the DX7 or DX100 or, you know, lighter uh, you know, Yamaha keyboards, you could have an understanding of what it might sound like when it plays back. It was kind of great, actually. The thing with gems, too, is like I have a somewhat negative connotation with it in my head. Uh, it's probably not totally founded because there are actually some very good soundtracks that used it. But it's just the sort of thing where because they gave out a tool for people to use that, you know, composers could just make music without worrying about the technical aspects as much. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that leads to there being like a whole batch of soundtracks that just have really simple sound design. It's the kind of thing too when people talk about like pitting the different consoles together in the console war. You know, everyone will say the Super Nintendo sounds better than the Sega Genesis. Uh, I think it's true a lot of the time. I, I mean, I personally think the best Sega Genesis soundtracks are the cream of the crop. I think that's like the mm-hmm. best stuff from the 16-bit era. Yeah, it, yeah I would agree um, too. Yeah. But a lot of the bland kind of cheap sounding Sega Genesis stuff can sound really, really bad. Yeah, it's interesting too because Nintendo had a similar kind of system too um, where they would kind of sell you a kit for the Super Nintendo. And so there's a lot of really bad Super Nintendo soundtracks that obviously use the similar kit. That's true, yeah. Um, but for Gems, it was kind of widespread, um, and it was utilized by a lot of, uh, you know, American companies to kind of uh, to release their material. Um, and, you know, like, it really is kind of up to the person who was programming it. You had the ability to go in and edit the instruments if you wanted to. So, you know, it's like, you know, garbage in, garbage out, kind of. Yeah. A lot of people who were just slamming music into here who didn't care made really bad soundtracks. But it was ultimately a great tool for someone like even myself, if I was composing at that time to make good music in MIDI and then try to figure out how to make it sound really good by making lots of tweaks, even if I didn't necessarily understand it. And I think that that's, was kind of what they were going for. And I think that like, I mean the earthworm gym soundtrack and earthworm gym two soundtracks use this toe jam and Earl two panic on Funkatron. These are some iconic Genesis soundtracks that use gems, you know? Yeah, there really is quite a bit of good content that was produced using gems, so it, it I guess it's not fair to rag on it too much. Um, but still, I mean, there is just the other side of the coin, the, the sort of stuff that I think sounds bland, like uh, Double Dragon 5. Oh, man. I mean, it's just a perfect example of mapping something without really considering it. And like, you know, (laughs) someone was doing it for a paycheck and I appreciate that. But at the same time, the audio was just not good. So uh, one very major thing we haven't brought up yet, there's a bunch of different models of the Sega Genesis. And with those different models comes some different audio. So the biggest thing that comes to mind is the Model 1 Sega Genesis. That has a headphone jack on the front, and it's widely considered to be like the have the best audio. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I guess I have each one of the different consoles. I have a Model 1, I have a Model 2, I have a Nomad. The Model 1 has kind of a warmer sound that I enjoy. Uh, when I perform live, I use the Nomad because it also has a headphone jack, which is great. And it is really, really, really loud. Like, <laughs> I, I, if you use the head jack on the Nomad, make sure that you turn it all the way down and then move it like two millimeters because that is an, like three millimeters will blow your ears out. Um, I can blow systems like entire like huge sound systems out if I put it at five out of ten. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you probably um, shouldn't be using a Sega Nomad on someone's expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, well, know, that's, that's trip music for you. 
It's chiptune. Um, yeah, there's a website here. Uh, Little Scale has a page detailing some sound comparisons between some of the different models. Um, we'll play a quick example here. This is a song being played through a Sega Mega Drive Model 1 from the headphone jack. And here is the same audio going through the uh, AV socket of the Sega Nomad. So there's actually a lot we could say on this, um, but there a bunch of years back, I asked this guy, uh, Ace9921 uh, on YouTube. You know, he's very knowledgeable about Genesis Audio and Genesis Hardware, I should say. Uh, so I asked him what his opinion was on what system has the best audio. And he gave me a very detailed uh, breakdown. I'll link to it in the show notes. But like, even for the Genesis Model 1, there's seven different motherboard revisions. You can call them like VA2, 3, 4, 5, 6... 6.8 and 7. I mean, the list goes on. There's like a, a bunch of stuff like this to consider when you look at all the different models. He says that the Genesis Model 1s with the VA7 motherboards uh, should be avoided. In his words, they sound like shit. Uh, the sound is distorted, <laughs> low quality, and very hissy. I guess an important thing to bear in mind is that the one he's talking about there, I think, uses the ASIC audio. I should clarify ASIC. Uh, so the 2612 chip is uh, a discrete chip. It's its own chip in these early models of the Sega Genesis, um, but they integrate it with the PSG audio uh, in these certain revisions and uh, is generally considered not as preferable. Yeah, that's correct. Like Eventually, you start to see the YM3438, which is a revision of the 2612. Uh, and then there's also integrated YM3438, which is kind of that ASIC we're talking about. So there's a lot of different I guess revisions here. It's impossible for us to even list it out in the show because we're, we're ju- it would just be like us reading a list of like file names. It would sound like yeah. there's no. It makes much more sense to just link them here. And yeah. even now, I, I've like and I'm looking at my show notes right now about what I was going to say about this, and it's just like a long list of confusing things. So it's better <laughs> to just visually show you this as opposed yeah. to reading off a bunch of different things. Supposedly through the clear audio mod, which is what a lot of people use for performance, if you take the discrete YM. 3438 out of a Sega Genesis Model 2 or Sega Mega Drive Model 2 and put that into a Sega Genesis Model 1, that should give you the the clearest audio. Now, again, I've just read that. I could be, I I haven't done it myself, um, but that audio mod is supposed to be the king of the audio mods. It's, and it's, you know, there's other complicated things going on here. You have to kind of like route the audio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's supposed to be the cleanest. It gives you the, the best and rawest sound. So, um, and again, we'll just link everything yeah. here. <laughs> and if you didn't want, you know, if you weren't going to go through the hassle of uh, modding your console, um, I asked Ace9921, what, what are their thoughts on what produces the best audio? And uh, this is what they had to say. They said that their recommendation is any Genesis Model 1 with a discrete 2612 chip. Sound is best on that. If you find a Genesis Model 1 that says high-definition graphics oh, on yeah. the case, mm-hmm. you're guaranteed to have that. And they're saying that if you prefer the sound of the ASIC chip, uh, get a Genesis Model 2 with a certain motherboard. And again, you can read about that. Or, or the Nomad, they recommend. 
Um, yeah, the, the yeah. Genesis Model 2 is actually really easy to figure out what uh, revision motherboard it is because the later revisions have a half motherboard in there. And when you uh, flip it over and look through the little vent on the bottom, you won't see a motherboard there ah, uh, okay. because it's yeah. it's only half. Like literally inside the case, there's only half a motherboard there. So Yeah, I think we had another <laughs> link for that like on how to tell the differences. We'll, we'll include all of that in the comments here. Yeah, it, it's, it's a big confusing walk around, but it, it, think about it this way. The Sega Genesis, depending on what model you own, sounded different. And there's not many consoles we can say that have that. Well, I mean, <laughs> which I, the, is crazy. The, 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 the closest uh, comparison I can think of is all the different Game Boys. It's kind of like you can expect the, a similar thing happening with the different Genesis models. Where one's going to be a little bit hissier. Mm-hmm. One's going to be cleaner. One's going to have better bass. Uh, yeah. S- similar yeah, I, similar situation. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. Um, so to sort of just close out the discussion of Sega Genesis here, we each wanted to, to sort of pick and share a couple of our favorite selections. Um, we could make like a really long playlist if we wanted, and maybe we'll actually do something like that in the future. But we just want to keep things short. So I have two selections here. I really like the Echo the Dolphin games. Um, particular, oh, that's great. Particularly Echo the Dolphin 2, Tides of Time. It just has a really distinct style to it. There's some tracks that are haunting, uh, atmospheric. Uh, it has a bit of that like sort of progressive psychedelic vibe to it too, sort of like the music of Bernard Favre reminds me of. I think I don't know don't know if I'm getting his name right. Yeah, it's just an amazing soundtrack. So uh, here is a track from Echo the Dolphin, uh, Tides of Time. Another one of my favorite soundtracks for the Sega Genesis is uh, the soundtrack to Yeast 3, or YS3, as I always incorrectly uh, called it growing up, because I had no idea how to pronounce it. I, I, said, I said it that way, too. It, it is Yeast, right? Is that... It, I, yeah, I believe so. It's based on the... It's like Yeast, based on the uh, the Japanese characters. Uh, gotcha. It would be like I Y or I-L-S or something, yeah. Yeast, or, yeah, something like that. So this, this is uh, Yeast 3, Wanderers from Yeast. Uh, it's an absolutely incredible soundtrack. Um, I don't know if I'm kind of like the weird one on this because it has Redbook audio for the uh, – is it PC-98 version, I think? Um, I'm forgetting the exact platform. So there is like an even higher quality version of the soundtrack with like, you know, full synth CD audio. Um, but I vastly prefer the Sega Genesis soundtrack. 
there's uh there's even there's a super nintendo soundtrack for the game is on that platform as well uh that soundtrack is very good as well but just the sega genesis version comes out on top for me i think it's just absolutely fantastic sounding very rich bright sounding voices a very full sound uh very well orchestrated i'll just play an example it's a great soundtrack So there's a, it's very hard to come up with just one particular thing from the Genesis that I really love. I guess the top thing and the track that I always kind of gravitate to would be a laughter from Fantasy Star 4, the Zeophyte music. It's um, pretty maniacal and crazy and utilizes just like a lot of, I don't know, great sounds. Uh, so let's take a listen to it.
actually, you know, it's funny. I was uh, right before we played that example. I was, you know, I was saying, oh, there's, you know, it's hard for me to pick. Now, I, I would say probably my favorite soundtrack to any Sega Genesis game would be Jewel Master uh, by Motoaki Takenouchi. It is just kind of a prog dream. It has so many like really cool and kind of jilted, uh, you know, meters and stuff. It's just a really cool soundtrack, and it's a really fun game too, actually. Um, I still play through that from time to time. So one of my favorite themes from that would be the one from uh, The King Turtle. So let's take a listen to that. Yeah, the Jewel Master soundtrack is totally awesome. Uh, it, yeah. It's one I ripped a bunch of years back, uh, but I, I just did a search on YouTube, and it looks like I didn't upload it. So I think it's just one of those weird kind of random ones that I never got around to uploading, even though I did rip it. Uh, maybe some, oh, wow. maybe someone else had it up first or something, but uh, and maybe I just didn't bother. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I see one upload here by someone named uh, Micro Portal, and it looks like they used like the art uh, like from my rip. That accompanied it. Like I think they probably uploaded my rip of it. That's pretty funny. All right, so we also have a couple modern examples of Sega Genesis music we wanted to share. Um, Steve, of course, I'm not going to let you uh, be bashful and not share your music because <laughs> you make a bunch of kick-ass Sega Genesis music. So uh, we have a track here from your Battle of the Bits. What is this? Yeah, so the track I have here is uh, Vitriol Hammer. I uh, entered it into Winter Chip uh, 11. Uh, and just placed first in the Sega Genesis category, which I was very happy about. Um, kind of used all the channels and tried to really exploit uh, just every little ounce that I could get out of it. And, and also make something that sounded like Dark Wave as much as I could. Uh, and I think it kind of accomplishes that a little bit. So.
Something else I really like is my friend Joey's album, uh, Animal Style, uh, has an album called Trench Vent. It was, oh, man, it's such a good it's album. It's fantastic. It's all done on Sega Genesis. There is a little bit of uh, cheating, I guess you could call it. There is a little bit of DX7 mixed in there. Uh, you know, it uses a, it's a Yamaha synth that uses a, a sound set very similar to the 2612. So there's a bit of like extra padding and a, a little bit of augmentation. Um, but it, it is a, a very fantastic Sega Genesis sound. And uh, let's give it a listen. So I would be remiss without mentioning the the, uh, the the slew of like really really good FM dudes that are on SoundCloud, uh, such as uh, Dread. Oh, I I always just read that as J Red. I I think I've heard Dia say it as Dread. 
like that J-red. makes so much more sense. I, I mean, Tre- Trevin, if we're butchering it, just tell us right now. <laughs> wow, I always so, read that in my head as J Red, which makes no sense now that I'm looking at it. So yeah, yep. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's a slew of really good uh, FM composers. I'd say uh, when I was first doing this, I mean, Dread and some of these other guys have been doing this a lot longer than me. Um, and the real inspiration for a lot of my original works was Dread, uh, Groove Master 303. You know, and I, I remember listening to a lot of those different works, uh, Cosmo BG. Um, so I guess trying to pick a track, and they're so prolific, it's so difficult. The one thing that I heard lately that I really enjoyed was FM Radio Underground, which is done by Dread and Groove Master 303. There's a lot of great tracks in here, uh, so we'll play an example of one of those tracks. So yeah, I guess that about wraps up our Sega Genesis discussion. Uh, Patrick, what else is going on? Yeah, so uh, I had this kind of fun conversation with Kevin Burke on Twitter. Uh, He wanted to know what was the earliest Famicom game to use samples musically? Um, Because something we talked about again in the NES episode is that... uh, the earliest Famicom games don't have samples in them. Uh, And that's something that I think Konami was kind of ahead of the curve with. So we basically just started going backwards through Konami games to try and figure out what was the earliest thing. You know, he wanted to know if anything before Contra used samples. Uh, So I just kind of went further back the chronology of Konami games. I found Falcyon had one. That was uh, in late 87. But then we just kept going further and further back until Kevin found, this is the earliest thing he's found thus far, I believe. Uh, exciting Billiard. This is from, when is this? This is from June 26, 1987. Uh, wow. It has a bass drum sample in it. And uh, it's the earliest credit to that particular sound uh, composer. I think the name is Fujio. We looked further back in their games. Uh, Gradius, King Kong 2, Goonies, Twin Bee. Uh, those games don't have any samples. So Exciting Billiard might be the uh, earliest game to use samples musically. Wow. That's crazy. It's kind of funny. It's a weird piece of history because it's not noteworthy, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one knows or cares about that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> except for us. Except really, for us. But... It's just one of those yeah. odd things. And I think once uh-huh. we can really determine like what's the earliest Famicom game that you samples musically, uh, mm-hmm. that'll give it 
somewhat of a distinction. It's, it's like something that a Famicom game deserves to have some recognition for. Yeah, who, bro- I who think broke so. the ice on that? And uh, you know, so we it might be exciting billiards. So um, I have like tentative plans to kind of chip away at the list of Famicom games and go further back. Uh, I went back like a couple months earlier every Famicom game and like didn't find any examples of samples yet. So um, that might be it. Who knows? So in our last episode, the Halloween episode, it's funny because me and Patrick kind of put together a huge list of different tracks. I mean, we probably could have had two or three hours worth of music, but we, you know, we tried to keep it to one hour. So it was a slightly more listenable format. And in the intro, I kind of mentioned that we're going to have a DOS track included and we didn't include a DOS track. (laughs) Which, yeah, well, you know, it kind of it just kind of bothered me because I was really excited that I picked a couple different kind of spooky DOS tracks. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, oops, that's my that's my screw up. Uh, yeah, what, what did you pick? What was what was uh, in there again? Yeah, so the tracks I had uh, queued up were, uh, I guess, like you know, when you uh, win in Warcraft Two as the orcs, it plays that kind of like creepy offbeat music. Um, so I thought that would be kind of spooky. Uh, the other one that I was thinking of, and like I guess the spookiest game for me that I can possibly think of on in DOS was Doom, obviously. So I just had uh, one of my favorite tracks from Doom in there too, which is actually funny because it's a MIDI file, and that's exactly how I remember it uh, being played back off the MIDI file. So, oh well, there's uh, there's always next year we can f- fit those back in there. Um, the Halloween episode is going to be an annual thing. Uh, I had a ton of fun picking tracks. I'm sure you did as well, Steve. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Yeah. And it's just amazing how uh, it's like one game would lead into another game and lead to another game, like just kind of, uh, you know, oh, I remember this one or I remember this one. I, I, a lot of it, I look, just literally looked at a list of soundtracks and said, oh, that had spooky music. So it's kind of great. It was, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun hunting down spooky video game music. It's a great thing because like, you know, I wanted to sort of avoid saying, oh, it's a Halloween episode. So let's just do like, you know, vampire killer. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted more music that s- generally sounded spooky rather than just having uh, belonging to a game with horror themes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, but so I mean that really expands things if you're not just limiting yourself to horror games. And uh, so there's a lot of stuff we can pick. And uh, I'm excited to just make a playlist every year and uh, go further down that rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. So last but definitely not least, uh, I want to mention the recent work we've just started doing with uh, Stefan. Um, he's a Swedish podcaster and video game historian. He has a website, videospellsclubben.se. Uh, I don't know if I even pronounced that right or not. Um, but it's a really fantastic site. There's not a lot of English content up on it yet. But uh, if you click, if you go to their site, uh, we'll link it here in the show notes, and go to English content, he started linking uh, and embedding the podcast there. Uh, the one other thing he has up currently is an interview with uh, Steph Pickford. It's a British developer uh, who worked for Rare. Uh, I, it's a text interview. I highly recommend reading it. There's a lot of really cool stuff in there. There's scans of like sprite sheets in the design process for Wizards and Warriors 3. Just a lot of cool information in there. And uh, the stuff that Stefan's putting together is really absolutely fantastic. He is going to be working on a Sunsoft sort of documentary of sorts. He's doing all sorts of great work for it, and we're actually going to be involved in helping uh, in some way. And uh, so, yeah, it's just a really cool site. We're going to be putting some of our interview content up there as well. 
you know, I think uh, Stefan's just a really like-minded person who's interested in gathering these sort of resources, creating new interviews with video game developers, and uh, he's going to be putting together this really cool network of people who are gathering this kind of information, and I think it's going to lead to some great stuff. So we're really looking forward to working with him, and uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I'm really excited about it. All right, so now that we're back in the swing of things here, uh, it's time for Name That Game. But it's been a while, Steve. Did anyone guess the uh, track that we had picked last? Uh, no, that would be a no. <laughs> All right, we finally did it. <laughs> uh, the, the, there's a slight problem, though. Yeah. <laughs> so I had picked a track that was FM Towns. I threatened, and I threatened, and I threatened, and I finally did it. Um, but I, FM Towns um, is a console, by the way. I feel like I should just that needs yeah. to be pointed out because some <laughs> listeners, and it would not be to their fault at all, are thinking FM Towns. What the hell is he talking about? Uh, yes, that is a weird uh, kind of obscure console, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's what I picked is so obscure that um, I uh, well, uh, I don't remember what I picked. <laughs> <laughs> so th- th- this is so- totally unfair on our on our part because. Uh, <laughs> It's a terrible way to like run this sort of thing, because like you know, if we're gonna pick something a little more on the obscure side, there should be a reason for it. There should be something. Well, people, you know, something people we were really guessing like in or... the first. Fi- mm-hmm. I mean, people were guessing in the first fifteen seconds that we posted, so we we tried to get a little down down in there. I mean, if anyone can remember what it is, I guess you get bonus points. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna go through my library of BGMs and try to figure it out because it was. It's. I mean, I have it on my computer. I just did a quick scan to try to match it up, and I I'm not sure. Is this so. something where like no one's claimed the lottery ticket, so now the the rewards going up? Yeah, you, you get double, uh, like two times nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so perhaps we should pick a track this time that we will remember. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like months later. <laughs> but yeah, let's uh let's let's pick something that you and I are not going to forget. <laughs> okay, and uh, definitely here it is. So that wraps things up. Uh, Steve, did you have a closing track picked for this episode? Yeah, I think that a game that uh, we both really like and we love the music to would be Castlevania Bloodlines. Yes. Um, and so one thing that I think that's so amazing about the soundtrack is a lot of what the, the you know, what you can do with FM synthesis is create kind of bouncy, boingy kinds of sounds. And uh, Yamane uses lots of smoother sounds. It makes kind of an orchestral sound with uh, the soundtrack. And I think that that's kind of rare amongst, uh, you know, Genesis soundtracks. So, and, and, and to pull it off in such a, a great fashion. So here's a track from uh, Castlevania Bloodlines that is, uh, I guess, a little bit more smoother. Uh, and I think it's a, a fitting way to uh, send this episode off. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, thanks everyone again for listening. Join us again in a couple weeks for an episode on Lost NES Music. Uh, This has been Retro Game Audio.